Welcome to the Story Geek Show. On today's show, we're talking about Egypt again, but this time it's not about Moon Knight. Today we are digging deeper, although we're not going to dig real deep into death on the Nile. We are going to go a little bit deeper into whodunits in general and talk a little bit about mystery movies and books and that kind of stuff. So that'd be really fun. And then we are going to travel to the other side of the globe to discuss episode one of the brand new HBO Max series, Tokyo Vice. So we won't be spoiling Death on the Nile, uh, which you can also see on HBO Max, by the way. It's a total HBO Max sponsored show. Not really because they didn't sponsor me, but I'm talking about all their contents, maybe they should. Um, but we will be spoiling Tokyo Vice. So if you haven't seen that yet, just know that we'll get into a little bit deeper of things there. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers. And joining me on the show today is a longtime podcaster friend of mine. True story, we have literally never met in person. I wish I wish we had. We, we have not met in person yet. He's the author of Tiki Zombie and the co-host of the ESO podcast. Mike Gordon is here. Howdy. How are you, sir? I am Peachy Keen. Thanks for the invite. Oh, of course. It's always good to see you and talk to you. And you were recently, Likewise. by the way, I, I follow you because uh, I kind oh. of go to East Coast cons through you <laughs> you're, you're always posting these cool photos of the latest con that you've been to and you were recently at the uh i'm assuming sc con is south carolina south carolina yeah sc comic con which takes place in greenville south carolina um very fun convention been going there for oh about i think it's eight years now um and uh it's it's very focused on on comics uh and cosplay also have celebrity guests you know the usual uh, but it's the first big convention that I've been to in a long time. Um, we're slowly getting back into that convention scene this year. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, it's, just, it's fun to see all the... You take a lot of cosplayer uh, photos, and it's always fun to see people, how creative people are. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm nowhere... I, all my creativity goes into writing books. <laughs> I don't I don't Same. use any of that in any of the outfits or anything, but people are so cool in that regard. Yeah, um, Same. So, uh, by the way, uh, for those of you listening who want to listen to another great set of podcasters, um, I've been longtime friends of ESO. Even way before I was podcasting, they were podcasting, and I was uh, part of their whole Facebook group, and they're always doing really fun stuff. We, the, uh, You guys had me on a show recently to talk about Peacemaker, and that yes. was a really fun conversation. <laughs> so if anybody wants to hear my thoughts about Peacemaker then you can head over to the ESO podcast from a few weeks back and, and check that out. Anything else you're up to these days, Mike? Uh, that keeps me pretty busy. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, doing the, uh, cause we, I, I, on the ESO network, we have a few different podcasts and I'm, I'm part of three of them. Uh, the regular earth station, one weekly podcast, uh, earth station who, which, uh, we do every other week or so talking about whatever, you know, doctor who related, uh, stories that there are out as well as Dragon Con Report, which is one of my favorite conventions. So, so we host that uh, monthly. So, oh, uh, so that cool. that and and the writing and the convention going <laughs> keeps me pretty busy. Pretty busy, pretty busy. Yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. It's it's all really cool stuff. In fact, I don't really watch Doctor Who, which is like a, a geek faux pas on my part, but um, it is what it is. Uh, especially for someone who's written a time travel novel. Um, <laughs> but I, I do really enjoy you guys' conversations about. Um, the stuff you dig into and by the way i met ashley pauls through the eso network and ashley pauls has written articles and stuff for us and so she's she's a great um resource for in-depth reviews on really compelling stuff so that's that's really really fun yeah um, she's awesome 
So let's jump into uh, Death on the Nile first. Death on the Nile is based on Agatha Christie's novel. And if you've seen my video on writers who have sold the most books, which is, by the way, on my other YouTube channel. But if you've seen that video, then you know that Agatha Christie is number two on the bestsellers of all time list. Wow. She is right behind Shakespeare. And like basically they're neck and neck for being the most sold of all time so the source material here was at one time extremely popular if not still extremely popular um in this film kenneth Branagh directed the film and also stars as hercule poirot agatha christie's french protagonist who's notorious for solving all of the mysteries that, that she puts him in and he also uh directed the prior film in this series which was murder on the orient express and both films had very popular celebrities involved, um, which we'll probably get into a little bit in our discussion here. But I will say that this movie has uh, really struggled a lot. It was supposed to come out during the height of the pandemic in uh, 2020, I believe, and was actually delayed several times. And then it got hit by the whole Army Hammer controversy. Uh, he got sort of like a Me Too slash Cannibal <laughs> vibe going, and it was just all of a sudden tanked that that aspect of the movie. Um, and he plays one of the lead characters here. So all that to say, the movie has not done well. I don't actually think it has turned a profit yet unless there's some HBO Max earnings that that they didn't publish, uh, which is sort of interesting. It's sort of interesting. So my first question for you, Mike, with all of that background going into this film is <laughs> what did you think of this film? What did you think of Death on the Nile? Uh, well, just pref preface it a little bit by saying that I am uh, a big Agatha Christie adaptation fan. I've actually ah. never read any of her books, yeah. uh, which is something that I mean to do at some point. I'm just afraid that if I start, I, I will that'll take the rest of my life. And, and I think we've already <laughs> discussed that I'm pretty busy as it is. Uh, yeah. So, um, but uh, so, but I've seen many, many adaptations of her work, and uh, including most of the uh, Poirot stories. Uh, mm. So um, uh, this is the third adaptation of uh of death and nile that i've seen mm. and it's my third favorite <laughs> <laughs> the other um, two there's one from 1978 right there's one there's there one from 1978 with uh peter ustinov okay and then uh david sachet did a a a run of oh, no. playing hercule pro on television and he did uh there are i believe 33 novels and 50 stories and he did most of almost like 99% of them yeah now uh, he's the guy so 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 my dad is a huge Hercule Poirot fan. I can't say that name, by the way. I know. It is difficult for me as well. <laughs> it is so tough. But my dad's a huge fan. So we used to watch those as kids. And I'm pretty sure that that's the guy that has maybe more. I, I, I'm a, I hope I don't offend anybody by describing him this way. But he's sort of more like a... a pudgier faced version with a little black mustache yes that's yes, yes 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 he's phenomenal as he Poro. absolutely and i mean i think he he has set the bar really for for yes. that character if nothing if for no other reason because he's done it like more than anybody else by by a long shot you know yeah. i think peter ustinov did about eight films or something like that but um and other actors have played him on occasion but um yeah, and and this story for some reason uh, is one of the most popular uh, Poirot mm. mysteries. I think I think uh, Murder on the Orient Express is probably the better known one. 
And in my opinion, it's the better written one. It's the it's the more interesting mystery. Uh, this one's pretty much, you know, by the book in terms of your standard whodunits. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's 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 shot when it's shot. Well, it's shot against beautiful scenery. Um, you know, the Nile, uh, the pyramids, uh, Egypt. It just looks gorgeous. Um, you you put some gorgeous actors in there as well, and it just looks great, yeah. which this does. I mean, Brenna checks all those boxes. The mystery part of it, I think he does a pretty good job with. Um, like I said, it's I don't think it's one of her best mysteries, but it's not bad. It's 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 one of those ones when you see it for the first time, I think you're guessing. Um, and 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 you know, when it, when you're sort you're generally surprised by the ending. Hmm. Um, but uh, I do think that in this case. Uh, Brian, I took a little bit more license and liberty with the pro art character, uh, especially adding um, a like a sort of a pre- preview at the beginning, uh, a, a prequel sort of thing, and then a sort of end cap thing. And I, I didn't appreciate that. I don't think that was in character to what Christy would have wanted. Um, and I, I didn't think it was necessary. So, um, and I thought really this was going to be the last one, but, but apparently. You know, as you said, it's not done well box office wise, but it's done well enough that I think he's he's uh, doing a third one. So. Really? Oh wow, yeah. I hadn't heard that. That's that's yeah, interesting. Um, I'm I'm by the way mostly on the same page as you. I, I do want to bring up since you brought up the um, the older Poro examples, the guy who did the TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you say his name was? Uh, David Suchet. David Suchet. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either, by the way. <laughs> hey, you, you you win the pronunciation game so far, so I'm going to go with whatever you say. Um, he was he did something with a character that is really fascinating because this is a character that you know, just like Sherlock Holmes or Indiana Jones, or there's not a lot of character development per se over the course of this character's lifetime. There's just these little moments of development, and really the focus is on the mystery. But David Chasse did something with Poro that I found incredibly fascinating. And that was something that Kenneth Brano is definitely not doing. And that is that David Chasse seems to understand. And I haven't read a lot of the novels either, so I can't say whether who gets it right. Mm-hmm. But he seemed to understand that Hercule, Hercule Poro was intended to be a arrogant sort of almost unlikable character like you don't really you don't really love him as a character until you're endeared to him as having the personality that he has for the reasons he has that personality and then you kind of learn over time what his little weaknesses are and then you start to sympathize with him a little bit more whereas brana i think brings like even like you just said it like there's a there's a so for those who haven't seen it I won't spoil it, but there's like, like, like Mike was talking about, there's like a little prequel, but uh, maybe a, a prologue and an epilogue yep. here. Yep. And it, it's purely for the intended purpose of you sympathizing with Poirot and wanting to like him a little better. But what's interesting is I don't think on the TV show they ever went that direction. It was kind of like, here's the guy. He's who he is. He's, he's a little bit, um, you might describe him as like arrogantly OCD and he wants things to be the way that they are. And if they're not that way, he's upset about it. And, and Kenneth Branagh is definitely, he, he has elements of that here, I think, but it's not the same as, as the TV show did it. And I am in agreement with you that uh, I don't think I've seen the 1978. If I have seen it, it hasn't been in a really long time, but I, 
I did not love this particular movie. Um, I'm just going to repeat some of the like, really good things you said. Um, beautiful cinematography, gorgeous people, uh, great locations. Um, however, I do think that we're going to talk about this in a minute because I have a, another question for you that I think relates to this more. But I really did think the, the story got convoluted. Now, whodunits can get really convoluted. But here it gets especially convoluted in some ways. And I think that there are some deviations from the novel based on what I was reading about that make it even more convoluted. It's almost like they said, let's take some elements that we're dealing with in the modern day in 2022 and kind of like weave those into this story, which I don't have a problem with, but I don't know that they were weaved in all that well right. <laughs> yeah exactly um and then i also think and i want to get your take on this i think they actually miscast quite a few of the roles i mean gorgeous people phenomenal actors <laughs> but in the in some of the roles that they were playing it felt like so i'll just give you one example um gal Gadot plays the lead here and i think that there is again without spoiling it i think that there is some ways in which you're kind of not supposed to like her, but I feel like it's almost impossible not to like Gull. Like it's it's like, I mean, how do you not like her? I mean, it's just it's right. almost like difficult to not like her. Um, so what did you how did you feel about some of the casting choices? Yeah. Um, I you know what? I don't think I minded them as much, but okay. I will say, yes, uh, you know, Gal does bring uh, but I mean the way it's written too, I mean, it's not just her. I mean, I'm sure she's more than capable of playing someone unlikable that's a good point like you know um because i'm sure there's there's a lot of folks that don't like her um yeah. <laughs> and uh for real so i, I think that that would be possible but um i, I re recently rewatched the david sachet version and mm. uh i was very surprised because it's been a while since i've seen it uh but i was very surprised to see that that character is played by emily blunt in 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 that in that version and wow. and i will say that i do i do like that character more um mm. not not as a likable person but as a more interesting character and yeah. um you know developed a bit more and i and i thought that was uh, pretty good yeah she's one of the i think that was before she was a name as well so sure. yeah, um, yeah and that's the fun part about watching a lot of that show because there's a lot of english actors in particular that uh are, are we're doing it you know they were, that was their tv job before they got big in movies and whatnot so yeah that's awesome. um and so yeah she's in that as well um but uh yeah i can't remember who it is in the usana version as well but yeah there were there were uh i i i didn't think actually anybody in the cast like didn't didn't do a great job mm -hmm. um i thought everybody was pretty good um uh i i did find it odd that um uh, oh man, now I'm blanking on his name. But uh, there's one guy who's known for usually playing wild characters. Oh yeah, Russell Brand. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was totally not. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that like it took me a while. I'm like, is that could it be? No, it's too late. Like that's that's too reserved for him. But so uh, I give him credit because I I totally believe him as that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, I felt like um I felt like every single actor involved um had the ability to be stretched a little further than they were maybe stretched. Um, but then again, maybe that was just me. Maybe I was not, I wasn't connecting with the plot as much. And so it felt that way to me responding to, um, to how they were, 
how they were acting. But any other thoughts about that before we talk about whodunits in general? Because I want to talk about, I think both of us have said this is not the best whodunit that we've ever seen. Right. Um, I would probably put it like at a four out of 10. Like it's, it's, Ooh. I have a hard time even recommending it personally. Wow. Um, I don't know, but what, give me your, your final thoughts. I would thoughts go a little that. bit higher than that. Um, yeah. I would probably go like more of a six or seven. Uh, but I do think part of the, problem that you might have felt with it as well and i think part of what kenneth Branagh did especially with the uh you know the 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 scenes the pre the you know the preview scene in the beginning uh the prequel scene sort of and then the epilogue at the end uh, you know he has uh perot go through a story arc here yeah, yeah. character arc and yeah. and you know as you mentioned these stories when they're done really well they're not about the main character they're not i mean he's there to uh, impress us and and he's our eyes into well he's a little bit more he should be more intelligent he's like just like sherlock holmes or heck an episode of law and order we're there to see the crime and how and wow things go down over time you will learn about these characters right. uh because you get little bits here and there but there it's not about them and yeah. and i think brana made this movie uh, a little bit more about him uh, his character and i think that took away from from the mystery yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Now, I I would have said that two recent examples that I really liked of whodunits before we start to break down like what makes a good whodunit. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that Knives Out was extraordinarily well done. Excellent, excellent, yeah, well done. excellent movie. Probably one of the best in a long time. Totally agree. And then I also thought that Murder on the Orient Express was quite a bit better because I would have probably put that <laughs> one up in the eight range, eight out of ten range. Like that, that, that was. Um, and I do think that this movie suffers the death on the Nile suffers a little bit from like, um, there are a couple of pacing issues. Like once we move beyond the prologue, there are some location shifts that feel like they are meant to like, give us a really pretty location, which they are, they're phenomenal, mm -hmm. but then like move us through that in ways that you're like, okay, so now everybody's getting on the same boat. Like what, why, why are we doing that? Like, and, it, and it moves kind of fast through the, some of those kinds of things. Sure, sure. Um, and I realized that that's probably inherent in that story because they have to kind of go from like, we've introduced you to these people. Now they're here. Now they're here. Cause we need them to be here. <laughs> you know, it's like, and so it kind of goes a little fast and probably easier to do in the novel. So, um, so yeah, I just thought it was a little, little odd in that regard. But um, again, if you want to see, a beautiful movie with beautiful people <laughs> you can't go wrong i mean you're gonna, that's what you're gonna get Absolutely. um with a little bit of murder <laughs> with a little bit of murder mixed in exactly. um now i read a critic's review of agatha christie's original novel okay. uh which death of the nile is based on and it indicated that the audience would never be able to solve the mystery based on the clues and i think that that's probably true of the movie as well like i think you might be able to guess the result but i don't think you get it given what the movie's given you as clues right like everybody's a suspect and and you got to kind of figure out like they all have a reason to do it <laughs> um and that got me thinking that really got me thinking like what makes a good whodunit like so mystery is one of the most popular genres in fiction so what are audiences looking for in a mystery so what do you think what do you think have you first of all have you ever written a mystery and if, if i have i have not well, I, I sort of did on one of my uh, stories of Tiki Zombie. I kind of 
did a sort of take on a on a Sherlock Holmes story. Oh, cool, cool. Um, but uh, I don't think that was as successful as I wanted it to be because mm. uh, it's tricky. I mean, it really, is tricky, especially if like if you've never seen a murder mystery before, if you've never seen a whodunit before, right? I mean, obviously, you know, you're in for a a huge treat because it's 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 so fun. It's so interactive when they're done. Well, it's so interactive between the audience member and the, and, and you, whether you're reading it or, or watching it at home or watching it on the big screen, like you're just trying to guess who it is and everything, you know, the, the director and the story is swerving you every way it can. It's a fun ride. Absolutely fun ride. If you've seen like myself, if you've seen a bunch of them and you love the format, you love it and everything like that, man, is it tricky because you know that there's a pattern. Spoilers here for most uh, most who done it. The pattern usually is that the one who you think the least likely, or the least that you suspect the least, is usually going to end up being the person who committed the murder. Oh, that's uh, or who did it right. So knowing that going in, you know that that's you're watching it at a whole different level because mm. you're thinking, um, you know, you're thinking who. Who is who could it not be? Like, who are they saying that it's definitely not? Because <laughs> right. that's probably who it's going to be. Right. And and how are they going to successfully convince me that this person who doesn't look like they could have done it at all or would have wanted to do it or had no motive or had no opportunity or had a perfect alibi? How are they going to convince me that that person actually did it? Um, and I think. I do think Death on the Nile is successful in in a lot of in in that way. I do mm -hmm. think that it does pretty much set up like like you know the the people who you think are going are are guilty. Mm. Uh, I don't think it does a great job at giving you a lot of different suspects mm. um, because in in the other versions, I think the other suspects are a lot more uh, apparent. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of more guesswork. So there's a, you know, in, in the Brana version, there's only really like a couple people that you're thinking, okay, that they have a pretty, pretty strong motive and opportunity. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, without spoiling it, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it, it, they play off pretty well, but it, it's not perfect. Yeah. Uh, that's why I think, um, Murder on the Orient Express is one of the most perfect ones that's ever been done. Uh, not to spoil that movie, but you know, when you figure out, when you finally find out who did it, it is, it is mind blowing <laughs> <laughs> because they 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 do something. I don't know if Agatha Christie was the first one to do that, but certainly the most well known and the most effective, in my opinion. I haven't really done it, seen it done since. Yeah. So I think that's that's the trick, you know, if you're whether you're watching them. And you kind of have to play that game and you're playing a different game because you're you're automatically suspecting someone who it shouldn't be. Um, and if you you know, if you if you're writing it, man, that that's a trick because you have to you're taking your audience per, on the ride that you're not sure if they're going to be able to follow you. <laughs> very much. Very <laughs> much so. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I like a lot of what you said there. Um, I don't write I don't write mystery novels either um but one of the things i've noticed I, I'll, I'll walk through some things that i've noticed and i'll get your take on it mm -hmm. um the first thing is motives and reasons are really important for every single character that you touch like almost every single character has to have a motive or a reason in fact in fact there are some whodunits 
where the actual detective is put in question of possibly having a motive or a reason. Mm -hmm. That's always really interesting to me. Um, tension is a really important emotion that you're trying to draw out of the audience. Um, there should be underlying conflict in every scene. And the more, the more that is hidden under the surface where the actors are playing as if something's wrong, even though they're having a very mundane conversation about the weather or something. Right. Um, there's like this sense that not everything is right in the room. And that, like, that's a really important setting in ministry, in uh, mystery, because as you're sitting in, in a mystery, you're wondering, why is this the case? Your brain is constantly asking that question of like, why is this the case? And I think you've said this multiple times. and I totally agree with it. Compelling characters, often oddball characters or different characters alongside classic characters. And so we saw some of that even in, in Death on the Nile. We saw it in uh, Murder on the Orient Express. It's like there's a there's a more, for lack of a better term, like exotic character. And I just mean that as like a character that we don't see commonly in day-to-day -day life. But then there's also like the stately old lady who we always see, right? Like that's always a character. So <laughs> mixing these people together creates this, this uh, the, again, increased tension. Because obviously, like even in Death on the Nile, some characters sort of despise other characters. Even if we don't know why, we're like, well, there's some societal issues there. There's some cultural issues there, maybe. Um, and then I think the, the, the next most important part is that the plot basically unravels that tension, uh, revealing the motives and reasons for all of these interesting characters and constantly increasing the conflict. So what was a scene in the beginning of the movie where it's like, we don't know what's going on, but we know there's tension at the near the end of the movie now we know what's going on and the tension is very apparent to us because that person's mad because they stole a bunch of money from or whatever it is right like whatever right. the tension becomes in that um and i think that that at that point in time that's the real way to introduce to the audience those questions of why do i feel this way why are these things occurring on the screen and that unraveling is sort of the another another um i don't think a lot of people would call this necessarily a whodunit but it fits the it fits the criteria is um memento christopher oh, nolan's yeah. film right oh, like yeah. it's has all of these things like why is this happening what and then and then it lets you know like this is why that's happening you go that's mind-blowing because i did not know it was going to go that direction um which is again a truth that you got to have really good pacing and then you got to throw in a couple twists and turns so the audience doesn't start to assume, I know why all these things are occurring and I understand why all these things are occurring. Um, so Memento is a great example. I think uh, Murder on the Orient Express, like we talked about. Knives Out, um, oh, I think. So good. The only, thing I, the only thing I'll say about Knives Out, and this is true, Ryan, Ryan Johnson also did this in um, The Last Jedi. And I think you either care about it or you don't care about it. And you can take either side on this. But the biggest twist in both of those films occurs like in the middle of act two, as opposed to closer to the end of act two, which mm -hmm. means that if you're like me, you're thinking because I've been trained a certain way, right? I'm thinking there's going to be a bigger twist, but there isn't one. And so then you're left going like, wait, 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 what happened? That was the biggest <laughs> twist. I, I don't, and that can, I think that can throw you off, but only if, you know, maybe only if you, are like rooted into a way of thinking like I am that I shouldn't be, that I should be open to more kind of, but once you know the twists, you're kind of like, wow, that was a cool twist. What's the next twist? It's like, well, there isn't one. <laughs> it just continues. And you're like, Oh, okay. Um, throws me for a little bit of a, it, it's like, it's like, it's a, 
it's like it's promising something that it doesn't give you. And again, I think I'm pre-wired for that. But if it if I'm promised something that I don't get, then I'm kind of like, oh, I thought I was going to get something different. And then, then I have to like, like figure out right. why I feel that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what are some of your favorite examples of whodunits? Well, the ones you mentioned, obviously. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it is tricky because, you know, you can get caught up. I think they can get caught up on the twist element of it. And people can want to, they're expecting a twist. Mm. Um, even now, at, it, even that that's more than just whodunits now they're almost expecting twists with almost everything they watch now uh especially when you have you know uh advertising and and stuff or that or that is just like you know you know make sure you know you definitely want to see the last five minutes you know like oh because yes. that'll throw everything like off you know whatever and it's right. like you know that not every story has to be that way it puts a lot <laughs> right. of pressure on that um it kind of gives you that expect the the audience expectation and therefore if they don't have a twist you know if you just tell a story linearly really well it's not enough sometimes right because people yeah. are just like no i thought that was going to end up being uh you know something else but yep. kind of yep. like what you were saying exactly um so it's really kind of a, a a tricky thing to navigate especially if you're making something because you have no idea what your audience expectations are really going to be and i think yeah. That's why, you know, I think Agatha Christie did her job so well. What she did uh, will never be duplicated. I mean, coming out with like 75 novels and mm -hmm. and over like like tons and tons of uh, short stories, like mm -hmm. I think over 100 short stories. Um, and obviously not all of hers are winners. Right. Uh, but, you know, when 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 you're looking at uh, not only are her Hercule Poirot stuff, but her other stuff like witness for the prosecution, which mm. is an amazing story. It's amazing. It's been adapted a couple times. I definitely recommend seeking that out also. Um, uh, and then there were none, which has Ooh. gone by some names that are not so flattering and not so cool, but, uh, uh, but, and then there were none is a really good uh, mystery as well. Um so I and that's been adapted. I think that's probably been adapted more than any of her other works. Wow. Uh, there's been uh, many, many adaptations of that under. Uh, usually, it's either Ten Little Indians or uh, uh, or and then there were none um, mm -hmm. before they realized how insensitive they were being. <laughs> right, 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, um, and not all of the adaptations are winners, but I, I think it is one of her. Uh, those two are are probably. Her, uh, are her best her best stories that's awesome i'm at to revisit those i know I've, i know i've either read them or seen an adaptation um i'm at to revisit those for sure the other two that i would throw out there that i do not think that most people would assume fit in the mystery category because they would assume that it would fit in like crime or thriller mm -hmm. um but i think that a lot of the same elements that you and i have been discussing this whole time are also present in these two stories um, and that is uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yes. Um, and I will tell you, I sent a text message. I, I'm on the I'm on the um, Netflix schedule for Better Call Saul, so I'm not like on the current season or anything. But I sent a text message to Caleb Monroe, one of the, my old co-hosts of the show, and I just said, "Better Call Saul is, in my opinion, the best written show that has ever been on television." Like the way that show is written, and he said it's really acted well too. And I'm like, it sure is. I mean, it, it is like, and, and I think the, the reason I bring it up is because 
what it's doing the whole time is even though it's not functioning as a mystery in terms of like something happened and we're trying to unravel what that is it's more along the lines of we're walking alongside what's happening as it's happening so it's not like it says like murder who did it it's more like life situations where is it going and that's not quite what a whodunit would qualify as but i say that because it has a lot of the same elements there's tension in scenes that are like that that feel like they should be normal scenes but there's just there's a he, he did something that i thought was masterful there's a scene in season five and i'm not spoiling anything with, by telling you this but two characters are standing on a balcony and there's a little bit of tension going on between these two characters and uh, I don't know if it was the director, I don't know if it was the writer, but whoever did the, whoever had this idea was brilliant. Um, they set an empty beer bottle on the railing as the two characters are having a conversation. There's not inherent tension in that conversation, but there's underlying tension about what will happen later. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the, they shoot the scenes that you see the bottle sitting on this very thin railing on the second story of a building. <laughs> And you can tell the whole time it's like even though there's there's underlying tension in their conversation, I have tension because that bottle's gonna fall at any moment. Like, <laughs> and so the, the the metaphor there is like the metaphor there is such a good metaphor that's literally weaved into an individual scene in this much bigger narrative. And that's the kind of thing that I think is inherent in in whodunits and mysteries. It's like this tension of like these two people are in a relationship and something is going wrong. And we don't quite know what it is or which direction it's going to go. And I think that that show is just brilliant in that. So I'm going to have to do an episode on that show just because I love that show so much. <laughs> Sign me um, up. <laughs> I love that show as well. I do think, I think that's one of the rare occasions where the spinoff and certainly the prequel is, is I think almost better than the original in my mm. opinion. Uh, and I don't usually have very nice things to say about prequels in general. So, yeah. uh, but that one is the exception to the rule, the strong exception. I don't know if I would go to as, as far to say it's the best on television ever, but it's, it's in my top 10 easily. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love it so much. And, and, and I do think that I do like some shows better but usually there's some other reason I like those other shows, but the writing in this show is just like, Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. It's just Nothing so good. It. Yeah. Um, give it all, all right. the awards. Give it all the awards. I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> um, all right, let's jump into uh, Tokyo vice. So okay. uh, HBO max just released the first three episodes of Tokyo vice. Um, we're just going to talk about the first one. Uh, I've only watched the first one, so I can only talk about the first one. This is a TV series based on Jake Adelstein's or Jake Adelstein's, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, memoir. And Jake is the first foreigner to ever write for one of Japan's biggest newspapers, which is pretty mind-blowing. This series follows Jake as he digs deeper into the Japanese underworld as a crime reporter. Um, and this is, happens, this occurs in the 1990s. And when I saw the trailer for this, I was instantly in i'm like i am in on this show this sounds this looks amazing um and just just as a reminder we are going to give our initial initial thoughts on episode one but we will be talking spoilers in episode one so if you haven't seen episode one yet just know that that we're going to talk about spoilers here but before we get into the spoilers just what did you think of episode one of, of tokyo vice uh well first of all i think i might have heard the name of it but i hadn't, hadn't seen anything until mm. you mentioned to me that you were thinking about doing uh, talking about it and so i was like well 
I like those two words together. I like <laughs> I like those two words separate, you know. Right. Uh, and right. so, uh, you know, I did a little digging in and I saw uh, like I saw a couple write ups about it or whatever. And I was like, OK, yeah, I'm, I'm in. Uh, I uh, really uh, am attracted to noir, mm. uh, uh, especially over the last like five or six years, man. I've really gotten into film noir, uh, American film noir. And also branched out into other countries. Japanese noir is is pretty amazing as well, and uh, and neo noir, you know, sort mm. of like modern noir, you know. Yeah. Um, so and this sort of fit into that wheelhouse. That sort mm -hmm. of uh, so I, I appreciated that. Uh, of course, when I heard the title, I immediately thought of uh, Michael Mann, and of course he is, you know, <laughs> part of this. I you know I. I I guess they had they figured they had to, you know, they were gonna put this they were gonna put this out there, you know, call the man himself, literally, right? Totally. Uh, because because I mean, you know, and so yeah, does it have some elements of uh, Miami Vice in it? Maybe a little bit, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, I think in its storytelling, I did watch I did like it enough that I watched episode two. I had to stop <laughs> before I watched episode three because I'm like, I don't want to get too ahead of uh things um but right right uh, you'd be able to predict things that i wouldn't know yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I'd, I'd say something and be like oh uh, yeah, so. <laughs> right, right, right. um and, and plus i think there are some some changes not not drastic changes but some things uh, that are developed in episode two ways that they go uh that i didn't sort of um expect but ah, yeah. um uh in terms of the way that they were telling the story Mm. Uh, and it felt more like a Miami Vice than the first episode did. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, I've appreciated this. I think um, I can remember, uh, you know, obviously another thing that uh, struck me was uh, the uh, 1989 movie Black Rain, which kind mm. of fits that uh, Tokyo noir, Japanese noir style, you know. Mm. It has to do with the Yakuza as well. So, mm. you know, they're the ultimate bad guys. You know, they're the, the <laughs> Nazis, Mafia, and Yakuza. <laughs> exactly um but you know a couple of them might take offense and you know you might be risking your life in telling these stories and this is a real story a true yeah. story which makes it even uh it feels more authentic so i i really uh enjoyed the first episode um uh i had just seen uh Man, I'm gonna blank on his name now, but the the main character I just seen him in West Side Story. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it's a <laughs> I have to sort of laugh visually uh, because uh, the visual take on it because that dude is so tall under normal <laughs> circumstances, right? And and you know, the whole thing is is about like an outsider in Japan, and man, they don't hide it at all. I, I don't even know if they have to accentuate it, but no one. Like talk about a guy who stands out in a Japanese crowd, yes. um, literally, visually. Um, so that obviously helps uh, with the the tone of the movie, uh, the tone of the show. But uh, no, it's I really like uh, where it's going. I for the past thirty seconds, I've been trying to figure out that that kid's name because um, <laughs> it's 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 uh, he's he was also in Baby Driver. And, that's right. That's and right. For whatever reason, I cannot. I'm blanking on his. I want to say Alden Ehrenreich, but that's the other guy um, that was also up for the Han Solo and got the Han Solo role. Um, so this I'll, is uh, it's uh, Ansel Elgort. 
Ansel Elgort. Thank yeah. you. Yes, yeah. that's exactly. It is it. not an easy. It's not your typical name. It's not. No. It's 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 still easier to pronounce than Proro. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is a. This is how can these guys pronounce these names? That's this. That's what this episode theme is. Um. Yeah. So I I I totally agree with everything you said. I'm also a huge noir fan. Hmm. Um. I love Michael Mann. Uh. I was just telling. Uh. Dale Wentland is going to join me on a future show. A future episode we're going to talk about um another episode of tokyo vice um on that show and uh and i was telling him i'm like collateral is one of my favorite movies of all time oh. um just love collateral as a person who grew up in and around la i think it's one of the best portrayals of los angeles on film because it it's it's done at the street level from a from a cab driver's perspective and it's the way that it captures it really feels like LA to me, all of the good and the bad of, of that situation. Some of the, some fantastic action, action sequences in that there's a moment where um, Tom Cruise's character uh, essentially has a fight in a, in a club. <laughs> and that is one of the coolest scenes um, that I think I've seen. So Michael, Mann, I, I really appreciate. In fact, he has a great on uh, on HBO max. There is a director's series where they say it's called like one perfect scene or something. Like oh that yeah, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he talks about the scene from Heat where yeah, they yeah. have the gunfight um, outside the bank, and uh, worth definitely worth watching. So is Patty Jenkins' um, episode on that same series. Um, so really, really big fan of Michael Mann. Um, I find the the premise of this story, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, really interesting. Um, I will say that in the first episode, and it'll be interesting to see because um, saying it's even a little bit more like Miami Vice in the second episode, which, by the way, Dale told me the same thing. He's like, the tone of the second episode changes quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in seeing that because I actually thought that it was going to lean a little bit more into the noir elements. I mean, uh. Japan has... Japan has this sense about it which we'll talk about in a minute because the, the the show deals with all these themes but it's it's culture at least what the, what this show is showcasing to us and other shows have showcased to us is that its culture is pretty solidified it doesn't feel as i've heard that's changing in the modern day but it doesn't feel as influenced by the west as some other cultures we see have been influenced by the west and because of that, I think that sets up a pretty interesting noir vibe, right? Like so, so I think that they could lean into that a little bit more. But I wouldn't necessarily say that Miami Vice gives me that same vibe because Miami Vice kind of gives me more of a. It's less about the, it's, it's almost more about the excitement of the of the of the area as opposed to the intimidating aspects of the area it's like you can take something in miami vice and it's like that would be really really scary in real life but it's kind of fun in miami vice you know what i mean like um which i'll be interested in seeing like how that how that plays out over the course of this series um any other thoughts before we dive into this next question and dig a little deeper we are going to get into spoilers here so if you haven't yeah, yeah. seen it yet just definitely bounce um uh yeah, I, I think uh, I'm ready to to go on because uh, yeah, anything else I say may <laughs> <laughs> maybe may maybe consider a deeper dive. So yeah, but I will I will say that I highly recommend yes um, episode one. I think it's really really. I, I I will say also to just real quick if anybody hasn't seen it yet before yeah. they turn us off or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know it's in my wheelhouse for sure. Mm -hmm. So I was hooked. 
but I could understand if people were, it would be watching and be like, wow, nothing really happens. There's not really a lot of excitement, <laughs> you know, like there's not like, if you're expecting like a Michael Mann action fight, Miami vice, you know, the kind of thing, it, it's not going to give you that in the first episode. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you bring that up. Yeah. yeah I'm glad because you bring that it, up. it, 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 you know, it's, I think we're still world building. We're mm. being introduced to the main character, the setting and everything like that. Mm. Um, I, th it's enough to pull me in, but just know that for some people it may be, you know, a slow burn. Actually, I'm really glad you said that because two of the things I brought up, are actually not present in episode one. So I said I really like Michael Mann and described like a club sequence that <laughs> exactly. was like mayhem and then like the the heat sequence. But actually, the thing I even like about Michael Mann more than his action sequences, which are phenomenal, are his little moments of giving you a reflection of what that culture could be like, which is why I like Collateral so much about LA. Right. There's literally a scene in Collateral where he had to have just told his cinematographer to start filming because there's a scene where there's a coyote when they're in basically downtown LA or the outskirts of LA, there's a coyote that runs across the street and sort of looks over even at the camera crew. And I can almost guarantee you that they did not like go grab a coyote and say like, we need to put the, they just shot that coyote running across the street. And that is a quintessential sort of look at this coyote lost in downtown LA that, coyotes do exist there but it, the setting is so weird and so off and i do think he captures some of those things in episode one of um of tokyo vice where yeah. yeah and and also uh the first five six minutes whatever that first sequence is mm -hmm. um you don't know anything going into this you're learning still as it goes but man you you were talking earlier about building tension yeah that's that first five six minutes is so intense um and you have no idea why it is you're you're trying to you know you're trying to figure it out but man he's he's really got you hooked or at least had me hooked right from that first sequence totally agree and he does another thing that i love i should say that the everybody everybody involved even the writers where there's not a lot of dialogue right describing why there's tension there right um, which I think is just phenomenal. And I love that aspect. So sure yeah, don't tell, right? Exactly. And they just do that really, really. Cause, cause if you're watching this and you don't write in Japanese or don't speak in Japanese, you literally are like, I I'm so tense, but I'm not even sure why I'm so tense. Cause I'm not even totally sure. I understand what's going on right now. Exactly. Yeah. So good. All right, so let's jump, jump into this, the spoiler part of the conversation. Um, based on episode one, one of the main themes of Tokyo Vice is dealing with how to navigate two cultures. Jake is this guy from the U.S. Again, this is a real person. Um, he's from the U.S. He went to school in Missouri. So we're not talking about like, you know, he's in like metropolitan Miami or San Francisco. Like he's from the middle. He's, he he was went to college in the middle of the country. He's ethnically Jewish, but he's in Tokyo in the 1990s. So I don't know about you, Mike, but I have never been to Japan. Have you been to Japan? I have not. Yeah. So neither of us have been to Japan. So we're, we're not going to be speaking from personal experience. We're going to be speaking from what the show gives us. Um, but it, it seems a lot like this is going to deal with a clash of two cultures. And so how did that portion of this show hit you? These, this, this fact that we're dealing with a culture clash. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, the, I think the whole first episode sets that up, and that's the whole um, sort of conflict mm. in the first episode between uh, Jake 
and Japan. <laughs> uh, you know, and like I said, they do a really good job visually at showing how much he stands out. Um, even though he speaks the language, as far as we can tell, he speaks it pretty fluently. He writes it well. I mean, we we're even told that, you know, his, his writing is excellent. Um, so he has all the, um, you know, he can, he can speak the language. He can talk the talk. He can walk the walk a little bit, but you know, ultimately he's not Japanese and uh you know that that's a real um problem for him it turns out to be a real problem for him uh not just with um people but with trying to like the he gets his dream job mm. and like within a day he finds out it's not what he thought it was going to be <laughs> uh and so we can all even though now we've never been to japan we can all relate to that yes like it, it so it's instantly relatable uh, I'd love to go to Japan some point. Um, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of Japanese movies, TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. I, I am attracted to their culture. But I was even thinking about this recently, and this um, sort of evolves around uh, a lot of other Asian countries too. I mean, recently I was watching the, uh, the Winter Olympics that took place in oh, yeah. uh, China. And, and I have the same feeling about uh, going to China that I would in Japan is that it's a bit intimidating. Mm. Um, because, uh, I mean, I have traveled, I have been to non-English speaking countries, right. um, notably Germany, right? Oh, yeah, and, sure. and I have been in a situation where I was alone mm. um, in, in a sort of store or in a, in a mall area and uh, note like, you know, having to try to talk to people and I didn't speak the language um not even close i mean it wasn't like i was i was broken you know speaking broken german or anything i was like i didn't know much german i didn't i still don't know much german at all so and, and so talking to people trying to communicate um was was difficult yeah um and it it it's hard it's really hard and it's a bit intimidating um i like having new experiences i i, yeah. I love it but that is a little intimidating i'm not saying that i can't get over it but going to those places, going to Japan. And so I can only imagine even, even on a small scale for him, he might, we still don't know why he's there. Right. We still don't know why he didn't just want a job in New York or LA or Chicago or whatever. Instead, he decides to go in Japan and become, and do something no one else has done. Right. Uh, and, and to become a reporter for this uh, newspaper that has never, ever uh, had a non-Japanese person work for them. So, uh, and it, that doesn't even seem to be his goal to be the first. He right. just, for some reason, really wants to do this. But um, yeah, you you know, he, he's done his homework. He's done a lot of work in terms of trying to fit in. But ultimately, he he doesn't. Yeah, that's that's really 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 uh, good synopsis. And I think it's interesting because um, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But um, I have been to China. Mm -hmm. I, I think oh, I was it. Wow. I think I was in the airport in Japan one time um, on my way to China. And I think I was also in the airport in South Korea, um, which, by the way, pretty different cultures between the three of those countries. Even. Oh, sure, sure. Um, I'm not I wasn't trying to suggest. No, no, no. I, 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 I know you weren't. I know you weren't. Um, just 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 keep in mind as I was thinking about it. But what was really fascinating to me about being in China, we, we were there for I was there for I was working at an orphanage. So I was like on like, I was on like a missions trip helping helping this orphanage out. It was a Korean run orphanage in China outside of Qingdao, uh, China. And it was a fascinating experience because not only 
I love seeing the Great Wall because we had a vacation day. We got to see the Great Wall. Got to visit Beijing as well. It was, but it's so shocking in so many ways. And coming back to the states was had its own reverse culture shock. I was only there for two weeks, but like being there was the most disconnected from my norm that I think I've ever felt in my entire life. It was there were things that I was encountering that were shockingly similar. To the states, mm-hmm. I did. I did not expect to go there and see, you know, giant downtown areas that look like New York, in a city that I've literally never heard of before. I agreed to go on the trip, and it's like there's eight million people in the city, and I've literally never heard of this city before in my lifetime. And seeing the seeing the fact that people were driving around in Mercedes Benz, and mm-hmm. there were very wealthy people, but then we were working on the outskirts where the people were dirt poor. That was striking because I thought communism would be like a more of an equal footing for everybody. And it's that's just not the case at all there. Um, And so the other thing, there were some other shocking things, too. There was um, and again, I'm a little off topic, but it's going to relate to what I'm going to say in a minute. Um, I was shocked by, you know, this orphanage. The reason they started the orphanage was because. In the States. We have, because and this is somewhat related to the show, in the States, we kind of have this idea that the States are very harsh on, I would argue, the States are very harsh on people who are experiencing homelessness, for example, because we are very meritocracy oriented. Even though we don't operate as a meritocracy the way we think we, sh- we, we do, we kind of think to ourselves, well, you put yourself in that position and therefore like, uh-huh. like you kind of deserve it, right? Um what was interesting, though, is that in the States, we tend to have a have a save the children kind of mentality. It's like very much about like these are kids that they, they can't care for themselves. And so we can't put meritocracy on them because they, they're not in that position. So we try to over there. What I was really shocked by is that they and this was showcased in the show. Um, this is Japan and China. So I know it's different, but this is so, somewhat similar is that there was a stigma. Now, this is back in um, 2007, I believe. This is, so this is before the Olympics that were the first time that the Olympics were, in, were held out there. So they were trying to be really nice to foreigners. But it was showcased to us by working at this orphanage how if you got a child that had a developmental disability or a physical disability, that was shameful because it meant that you had maybe done something wrong. Now, I'm not saying that's true in the cities, but definitely out in the rural area that we were in, that was the case. And so I had seen things that I had saw things there that I have never seen before and did not actually know existed. Uh, there was one child there who his knees were reversed. He was born with knees. Now we would we would in in the states we would solve that problem by by taking your knees and making them normal. His knees bent the wrong direction, like his mm-hmm. knees were backwards, um, and because of that, he had to basically crawl around on the, on the floor, wherever he, wherever he wanted to go to. Um, that was very, 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 um, odd because we, we would have said like, what's going on here? We need to fix it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But, but it really is. It's like, it's like, it's like, wow, this is a culture shock. It is like a, I cannot believe that this exists. I did not know this exists. I did not know this exists. Um, so things like that to like, to like really funny things where like we went to take the orphans um, to basically a theme park. <laughs> and it's like, 
these are this is a theme park where <laughs> I do not recommend you go to. The, there's the guy operating the ride, <laughs> and it's one of those like 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 boat swing rides that just kind of is on a pendulum, you know, and it just goes back and forth. The guy is shirtless. He has long hair. He's wearing <laughs> jean shorts, and he's he's hopping on and off the ride as it swings as a pendulum. And and he's like he's like putting kids in seats and like like not worrying about their seatbelts and stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, this is not safe in any way, shape, or form. So, anyways, I, I I apologize for going on and on about my experience in China, but my my point being is that 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 was the most out of my element that I have ever felt, and I, and I and I to this day don't really have a desire to go back to China because I just felt like it was the people. By the way. I should say this, the people on the street and the people you encounter, phenomenal people. Mm. They don't right. speak the same language. There is a barrier because they're not sure whether or not they should talk to you or not. If you smile and wave, the biggest smiles. So happy to say hi. Um, phenomenal. But you also had, this is again, not Japan, so I'm, I'm so far off topic here. Um, but they also had the people, the, the military marching through the streets regularly and you're like this is bizarre man like i don't know about i don't know if i want this kind of situation to go down no. um so now all that to say i'll i'll, I'll stop talking about uh, my experience in china which is just only somewhat related to this but i will say that i think that particularly in the u.s most of the development of the world over the past several decades has really been the U.S. leading the U.S. and the West. The U.K. is big too in this in this kind of thing. But leading globalization, we lead from an entertainment perspective. We lead from uh, a cultural perspective. We tend to think that what the decisions that we've made in America are the best possible decisions that you could make, sure. and we tend to put that on other people. And so I think that stories, Tokyo Vice in particular, is so good for us to experience because it can showcase different ways of thinking that we might not understand otherwise. And I think that you brought up a couple of um, really good elements. In fact, uh, I'll bring this comment up onto the screen so those watching can see it, but I'll read it for those listening. Um, I'm pretty sure this is this is Dale, by the way, Dale Wentland. So, hey, what's up, Dale? <laughs> um, he says, I think that he, meaning Jake, was shocked that everyone around him resented him for trying to be a white savior. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, and I think we're going to really get into that a little bit more as we talk through this entire series. But it's very apparent that what I just said was America seems to think that it's the leading purveyor of how people should think across the globe. And so Jake is taking that perspective here to um, to Japan and yet is then facing this this feedback that's basically like, we don't think like you do, man. <laughs> like <laughs> this is this is not a thing. So, um, perfect perfect setup for a conflict between cultures, which I think is really phenomenal. So, um, so let's get back to you, Mike. I've been talking for way too long. Um, <laughs> in the U.S., there's quite a bit of discussion about culture, um, and I like I said, probably because not only have we led globalization for the last several decades, but also you know. Our country is based on a plethora of immigrant cultures. The American culture is essentially an amalgamation of all the other cultures who have come here over the past 200 years, um, a little over 200 years now. So um, I'm wondering from your perspective, this show 
kind of indicates that Japan has had a very rooted, far more homogenous culture than we have. It's at least suggesting it did in the 1990s, right? So we're looking at this from the perspective of the 1990s, um, which means that some of the things that we think should be inherent, maybe even that people should have a right to, are not necessarily inherent rights in Japan in the 1990s. So what are some of the differences that stood out to you looking at Tokyo Vice as an example of, and this is a memoir, so we're assuming that some of this is based in, on actual truth right. of what Jake encountered. What are some of the things that, are, that were really stood out to you as being very different from a value perspective? Well, um, you know, Japan as a culture, hmm. as a society, is much older than the United States. Yep. Uh, in a lot of ways, even though this is in the nineties, uh, I still, I, th most of Japan probably still looks at the United States. Most of the rest of the world, Europe, China, et cetera. Think of the United States as the new guy still like the teenager. <laughs> right? Um, right. Uh, and yeah, when Jake comes over, not only is he, you know, just Jake, trying to get a job in a uh, Japanese newspaper, but he's also an American, mm. which has a lot of baggage to it. Mm. Um, you know, um, like you said, it's the, uh, the sort of the savior attitude, the uh, sort of like cow. I mean, they even mentioned cowboys uh, <laughs> in the first episode, you know, the, the sort of cowboy atmosphere. Um, the fact that Americans are obnoxious, they think they're always right. They're loud um etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, you know but all that aside culturally there's also the fact that i mean look it's only been especially when this is done it's been less than 50 years since hiroshima right yeah. like that <laughs> i'm gonna this is a really bad pun but it's still a dark cloud over japan yes and it's still a it's still there um, yep. it, that tension is still there between uh, Japanese people mm -hmm. and American people and, and not just as uh, countries, but even person to person. Um, it, there's a, there's still a lot of resentment. There's still a lot of hard feelings. There's still a lot of, you know, just a lot of everything, mm. uh, a lot of guilt in some ways, um, mm. you know, um, and that has nothing to do with Jake. I mean, Jake is still young enough that that didn't, that, that doesn't, he wasn't part of that at all. And yet he still has to deal with it. Mm. Um, uh, okay. I'm going to, I, I was look, doing some looking around and, uh, I found this quote and, uh, this is such a beautiful quote. It's full of some big words. So forgive me, but, uh, it's, um, it was written by, uh, Imogen, um, Sarah Smith for the film foundation. And mm. she was, uh, she said, Film noir represents subversive countercurrent counter to the prevailing religion uh, success, religion of success and continual improvement. Mm. Uh, Japanese noir, by contrast, is just one more expression of a cultural tolerance for tragedy. Wow. I know. Mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's so, there's good. so much to unpack in that <laughs> sentence that, yeah. um, but I feel it here. I yeah. really feel it here in this and that the fact that, yeah, it's not the same as, as, you know, some of the uh, American noir that uh, in terms of story and, and sort of uh, some of the uh, themes of uh, the best of uh, American film noir, mm. but yet this has a dark, this story has a darkness to it, mm -hmm. a tragedy, 
even before we're starting to talk about people being murdered. Yeah. Um, a tragedy that seems inherent in their culture. Mm. Um, you know, I think, you know, we, we see that in the, even in the, like the, 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 the Tokyo, the, the, um, Toko, um, uh, Godzilla movies. Oh yeah. There's that, I mean, it's, you know, there's been so much made about it, but it's there, you know, the Mm -hmm. whole, the whole atomic war, uh, you know, bomb thing is, is, is so prevalent and, and the feelings are still there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, so setting aside all other cultural things, which I'm sure we can talk more about as well. There's just that feeling of separation there that even from day one, before you even say howdy, yeah. you've got you've to work through. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that, that was great. That's a phenomenal quote. Um, and I think, too, like just to bring up some, some of the specifics that I think we saw in the show, too, b- besides some of the things that you've said, which I think that the bringing about the tragedy aspect of it is phenomenal because I think that's definitely there. Um, I think that from a Jake perspective, there's this intersection of freedom of speech and freedom of the press mm-hmm. that he's going to struggle with. Right. And yeah. I haven't seen episode two, but that seems very apparent in episode one of like, well, I'm going to come in and do the things that I would have done in the States, which there are like, well, that's not the way we do things though. Like you can't just do that. Um, and I think that uh, part of that. When we talk about freedom of um, speech, freedom of the press, or another one I bring up is freedom of expression. I mean, even to this day, I've seen celebrities in Japan have to cover up their tattoos because tattoos are frowned upon because of their association with the Yakuza. Right. Um, and it's like, well, you're not in a gang, so you better cover up those tattoos so no one sees that because otherwise people may think you're in a gang, which is um really mind-blowing as a person with a full sleeve and a bunch of tattoos like <laughs> i'm like i better wear sweatshirts when i go over there or something Hope um, it's not hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly exactly um and i think that a lot of that has to do with a very 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 american although this is true of other places in the world too of a societal importance of the individual versus the collective society and it's almost like you see in 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 this series, at least, the difference between that is very striking. It's not as striking, I don't think. Like when when you look at um, when you look at like some of the Latin American uh, countries, um, several of which I've been to, there is the collective there too. But they almost they almost have a very balanced perspective. Like be an individual, but be be an individual as a part of this collective, where we're very individualistic almost at, at the expense of the collective and in Japan, what they're showing us is the collective is the main thing. And if you're too individualistic, we, we actually don't want you doing that. Like you should be a part of what's going on. Um, and I think the U S then awards people for being different. Whereas here, it looks like they're not they're like, like you would be ostracized for being different. Um, and, and when I say that it's, it's different by choice too. Like, like, I'm not saying like, the, like the U.S. is the, the people in the U.S. would be choosing to be different. I'm gonna get sleeve because I want to be unique. I want my sleeve to be unique, um, as opposed to here where it's like, no, you shouldn't be as unique. Even, even the yakuza, we see the ceremony in episode one, um, where even the yakuza value the yakuza's collective societal norms, right? Like, um, and they have a whole ritual that they do. 
uh, we don't have a lot of those same rituals in the U.S. because in the U.S. we value that, again, that individualism. Um, so I think this is a fantastic setup. Um, I got one more question for us, though, to kind of uh -huh. dig even deeper into this. So stories have the power to really help us understand one another. And I'm wondering if Tokyo Vice can help us do that. So the one thing that stood out to me um, was the episode clearly showcases uh, that the dominant systems governing Japan and the U.S., just like we've talked about, are not the same. Um, but I think the show is also pondering the question, like, what can we learn from each other in order to build a better collective society? So if I turn that question to you, Mike, based on what you see in episode one, what are some of the things that came out to you as like, oh, interesting, that's so, that's one way we do it, that's one way they do it, and there seems to be a better way. Uh, did anything come to you that, that made you think about that? Well, um, I think, you know, the traditional setup is, you know, you have two, you know, you bring two people together that from different cultures, from different ways of life, and together they solve crimes, you know? <laughs> right. And so you definitely get that sense in the beginning, right? Because mm -hmm. you've got Jake and and I believe uh, uh, Ken Watanabe's character is oh, yeah. Roto. Uh, so you they... They seem like you're, you know, Crockett and Tubbs right in the beginning, right? Like <laughs> this is, you know, this is going to go down. And and so that's, that's, uh, so you're going to, you're going to see how both these cultures, mm. uh, you know, both people learn from each other, like strengths and some weaknesses uh, where they're coming from personality wise, as well as culturally. Um, you know, certainly when I'm, when I'm watching it, I think, you know, obviously the, the first episode is very much like, uh, you know, Jake is swimming upstream when mm. it comes to like dealing with uh, the Japanese culture. And some of it is is pretty negative. Uh, but he's frustrated, obviously. I think as the series goes on, I would not be surprised if we learn that there's reasons for some of that. And, mm. and some of that might be respectful. Um, but I think one of the things that I noticed right away um, and maybe I'm bringing a little bit of my own uh, experience with this as well, but I've noticed that in, even in, in the first episode that, uh, like, for example, the Japanese uh, respect their elders oh, yeah. uh, and, and treat them in a higher regard than it seems that we do in the States. Uh, you know, so so that is uh, sort of a plus. Um, and, um, you know, I think we're in that first episode, we're kind of uh, confronted with the idea anyway, that the Japanese don't care about their people as much. Uh, they, mm. they just are, are considered, they just are, are concerned with getting the job done. You know, don't worry about solving the case, worried about closing it, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, uh, you don't worry about, you know, don't try to figure out why things are happening. Mm. Just report on what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, these kind of things that we're told. And obviously, you know, I think Jake's going to try to bring some uh, some of his, his thought his thought process into it. It's sort of weird to me that he didn't understand that as much going in, because if he had, had any <laughs> like he, he right. immersed himself so much in the culture. It seems like such a big surprise to him that, you know, that things are happening in certain ways. And I'm like, he didn't you know you went to one of this job like didn't you really know what you were getting into right like, did you read their paper <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. um because yeah. obviously there weren't like you know pulitzer you know freedom of, of of information stuff going on in their paper right so like right. what what i'm curious to find out as we go on like what attracted them to read like to to being working there and all that so yes. so um 
So I do think that that's where the series ultimately is going. I mean, sure, it's going to be uh, an interesting, like, true crime yeah. uh, story as well. Uh, we're going to learn about, you know, how certain how the how the the press and the police operate procedurally, yeah. which is fascinating to me, um, as well as uh, you know what uh, what things that they're doing that on our on on to us to Jake seem like they're insane and sensitive what have you but I, there's probably reasons behind it yeah absolutely yeah i think that uh, that all makes a lot of sense I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the how we treat elders versus how they treat elders thing too because i think that's totally true and you can see it here yeah um, the way he's treating his i might be speaking about extra episode two a little bit so forgive me but that's okay the, the way he treats the way jake is is treating his own family is uh, would be unheard of in the Japanese culture. Ah, uh, that's, yes, that's, that's actually a good preview for the next episode. Yeah, and, and he's not mean about it. It's just completely different. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, you can tell that there's a lot of um, respect-based behavior. Um, you can even just see, like, like people have, people should respect each other and each other's cultures um, in very specific ways here. I think that it's interesting because I think we, um, in, in a place like the United States where we have an amalgamation of cultures, I think it can be difficult to have healthy conversations about what elements of culture are positive or negative and in what contexts. We very rarely have like a nuanced conversation about, well, what kind of culture would we want? We instead kind of get into this conversation of like, well, we do it this way and we do it this way. You can't tell me to do it another way and I don't want to be told. And it's like, well, actually... It'd be better if we each said, like, well, can can we take some of the best elements of your culture and the best elements of our culture and like and then push some of the other elements that we maybe agree are not the way we would prefer them to be? And can we so it's it's interesting. We have a weird we have a weird definition of that um in the States. Um, but this but this show it seems like it's gonna tackle some of those things head on in terms of how Japan does it versus how America does it, in which way because I think that there are some I think you could make a case that, and this is probably not true across the board, but I think you could make a case that some of a society's biggest problems are its strengths taken too far. And yeah. I do think that that is showcased on both sides, the U.S. side and the Japanese side in this particular show. Um, if you have a society that's focused only on order and principle and going along with the norm, then any deviation from that norm can result in this massive amount of shame. And we saw that in the husband who was mm -hmm. unable to pay the debt. And he thought that the best way, the best way out of that debt was to literally set himself on fire and kill himself because, because of the shame. And yet we would say in, in the States, we would have somebody say, eh, I'm in debt, but you know, I read the book like, uh, you know, give no F's. And so therefore I don't give any Fs and I don't care if I owe you money. I'm just going to do whatever I want to anyways. I mean, talk about uh, the, the farthest ends of the spectrum that you could possibly be on. Like my debt is so shameful that I have to kill myself versus my debt really doesn't matter. And if I've screwed other people out of money, like that's their problem, not my problem. I mean, like th those are two like diametrically opposed viewpoints that seem like we could talk about what a middle ground would look like in a healthy way. And we could learn a lot from each other in that conversation. Um, and I think we're going to go there in this show. I think it's going to start to start to 
you know, is, is and you've probably seen more of this in episode two than I have since I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, we kind of have an indication that this show is being set up that Jake is going to uncover some things that then the Japanese people are exposed to in a very healthy way. But, you know, I think that there's this, t- there's this tension between we have order and efficiency. I mean, look at that newspaper. It is full of order and they are insanely efficient. Right. And yet there's not much innovation. And so Jake's coming in and saying like, well, I'm going to push you to innovate because there's stories that we need to tell that we're not telling. And you could make an argument. I think we'll, I'm going to get into this probably in future episodes because I haven't seen enough of the series yet to make this determination. But I think you could argue that like in a, in the U.S. today, one of the things that we see in media is a lot of innovation without as much ordered cross-checking what should we really be reporting right now what should we not be what's true what's false be first to market with the story as opposed to the best to market with the story um you know and that, and that can start to feel like okay if this is what's happening in japan in the 90s and this is what's happening in the u.s in journalism currently what can we learn from each other about how to do this better because we need those stories but we also don't want to just become purveyors of clicks (laughs) right like i just need to get the clicks i don't care what i report on whereas in japan it's like no no no. we give the people what we want to give them as opposed to what they want which drives the clicks and so it's just like this interesting dichotomy that i think would be something to really wrestle with in the modern day um even for us and our culture and what we're kind of into um any other thoughts about the show at all mike um well like i said i i did uh i did enjoy uh episode two and for those people who like i said may feel like episode one was a little bit of a slow burn uh, i will also offer this preview yeah um many of the the first episode is very jake centric as a matter of fact i don't think there's any shots that are not that don't have Jake's perspective right (laughs) right episode two opens it up uh to Uh... the cast like so a lot of the people a lot of the characters that you meet in episode one, uh, you will follow uh, their story and uh, start to follow their stories in episode two. Oh, um, cool. So, so it, it broadens out a lot. Um, so, uh, I, and I find that really interesting as well. So, um, so it, it's it's getting better. Uh, not to say that it was bad to begin with, but I I, I really am excited about um, watching more of this show. And I'm, uh, you know, the fact that it was based on a true story, of course, means that. You know, we should probably already know the outcome, but you know, like <laughs> I didn't read that true crime story, so I don't really know the outcome, and I'm gonna I'm gonna remain ignorant, and then maybe I'll I'll read it afterwards. So. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Um, well, thank you so much, Mike, for joining me on today's show. Plug plug the stuff. Plug what you're up to. Tell people where they can find you and all the stuff you're into. Oh, as I, as always, I appreciate it. You can find uh, the podcast I do, Earth Station One, EarthStation1.com. All the shows that I'm on are on the ESO Network, which are is ESONetwork.com. And if you want to check out my books like Tiki Zombie and some of the other books that I'm working on, uh, we just finished a Kickstarter uh, for Tiki Zombie number four. Ten year, ten year Tiki anniversary. So, uh, so we're working on a new book now, um, and we've got some exciting things to come this year. So you can check out all that at NewLegendMike.com. That's awesome. Now, I have to ask you one question. Um, where do I start with Tiki Zombie? What do you suggest? Where, where do I go? Because I I have wanted to read Tiki Zombie. <laughs> I, can, like, I, I think I can hook you up with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I want to, I, I'm going to go buy some, some, some Tiki Zombie material. One, because 
I'm into the topic matter. In fact, I had a painkiller the other day. Um, <laughs> I had a, I was at a, I was at a restaurant. I go, they have a painkiller on on the menu. I got to order the painkiller, especially in now that I'm in Colorado. Like California had a lot of a lot more tiki influence. Absolutely, than yeah. Colorado does. So, um, so I had to order that. So I'm into the tiki stuff. I'm into comic books. So where where should I start with Tiki Zombie? Well, like I said, we've been around for ten years, but you know what? Our output has not that prolific. So I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there we like we're putting together the fourth issue now. There's three issues, um, so it's pretty accessible. There's a sound, there's a music soundtrack as well. There's some other stuff too, but the main part is, and and I've tried to make it so that each of the stories, each of the issues, is standalone. So you can really, literally, start with anything, um, and 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 get and you know get your tiki on. Perfect. I'm gonna start with episode. I'm gonna start with the first one, and we're gonna go from there. Um, so thanks for thanks for thanks for joining me again, Mike. Always a pleasure. Um, and that is it for today's show. New episodes will be coming out every Tuesday and Thursday. Normally, I would get into one of my books and read a little bit from one of my books, um, but I've got I've talked for long enough, and I'll do that on Thursday. So this coming Thursday, um, April 14th, I will be hosting solo. So come join me in the comments, and we will have a really fun conversation. Um, I'm going to be digging deeper into episode three of Moon Knight. Um, and also I will be getting into, I'm going to take uh, the Batman Joker scene that they were, that Warner Brothers released that's not in the Batman film and compare that to the Nolan Batman Joker interrogation scene and just kind of pick up on some of the similarities and differences that we get in those two uh, those two clips. So that's what I'm going to do on Thursday. So hopefully you'll be coming along hanging out with me to do that. And the following Tuesday, April 19th, I will be joined by my buddy Dale Wentland, who has been giving us some of his cool comments here. Um, and he's a former co-host over at Network 1901. So definitely join us for that. Subscribe to The Story Geek Show on YouTube or on your preferred podcast provider. Episodes are published to the podcast feed right after I finish recording them here on YouTube. And leave us a comment. Let, you know, let us know what you thought of Death on the Nile. Are you more on Mike's side where you say it's like, hey, it's like a 7 out of 10? I liked it a lot. Or are you more on my side where I say, oh, it's a 4 out of 10. I could have skipped it. And also let me know about what you think about Tokyo Vice as well. And if you do, I will try to share some of those things on a future show. And I will see you on Thursday. So thanks again, Mike. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Yeah, talk to you later.